Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of St. Peter's United Church of Christ in Ferguson, Missouri. For Palm Sunday, Senior Pastor Patrick Chandler and Associate Pastor Josh Privet reflect upon Luke's account of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem to begin Holy Week. Together, they look at the historical, political, and theological context of such an event as Jesus' parade to begin Passover rivals another parade on the other side of town, a parade for Caesar. Through this lens, the events of Palm Sunday are to be experienced as an act of protest against unjust cycles and oppressive systems. Listen as the pastors of St. Peter's proclaim, When things are broken, protest. A Palm Sunday sermon, part of our Lenten worship series, Breaking Cycles from Separation to Wholeness. Our text for the day is Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. To learn more about St. Peter's, you may find us on the web at www.stpeterschurch.org or on Facebook by searching St. Peter's UCC Ferguson. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40, found in the New Testament on page 83. After he said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he had come to Bethage and Bethany, at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Just say this, The Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They said, The Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set it to Jesus. They set Jesus on it, sorry. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that he had been seen saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. This is the word of the Lord. I want you to think back or maybe even think forward for a second. Remember your teenage years. I know that might be a struggle, right? It might have been a little bit, or you just want to forget them, right, generically. So if it's been a little bit, maybe think of your teenage years of your kid, or maybe think of your teenage years for your brother or your sister. All right, you got it? Thinking of your teenage years, the lovely, joyful, angsty time. So I firmly believe that the rulers of Jesus' time and the writers of the New Testament were a lot like teenagers. Stick with me. First, you have some of the normal ones who generally did what they were asked, often the oldest children who followed the rules. That would be Caesar Augustus. He built roads. He did sort of all of the infrastructure work. He kept the Pax Romana, the so-called Peace of Rome. It was generally stable and secured the borders. He was the normal teenager of the day. Then it goes downhill from there. You have the teenager who was a little too interested in relationships for his or her own good. That's Tiberius. 
the ruler right after. And get this. Dennis Dooling says he spent the last 11 years of his rule pursuing debauchery on the Mediterranean island of Capri. Think about that for a second. The last 11 years of his rule, he literally was nowhere to be found just like pursuing debauchery on this random island. And if I had to guess as to why he did this, my guess is he blamed his parents because that seems like the next logical step. So you have the normal teen, the teen who pursued too many relationships, and then you have the teen who you literally question if they're your child. Not because you don't love them, but because you have no idea why they're doing what they're doing. That would be Gaius Caligula, who, quote, demanded that he be addressed as a god, and then he proposed that his horse be made a diplomat, because that seems logical. So you have the normal teen, the relationship teen, the one who you question, and then you have the sociopath, who was Nero, who killed numerous family members, and then finally, the teenager who always asks for money, and that would be Herod, who built numerous buildings and continued to raise taxes in order to build them. The rulers of the time of Jesus and of the New Testament writers are rather eccentric, as you can see. Some of them plain old terrible, and some of them just strange. And it's why we can think about them as teenagers. And frankly, they did some really terrible things, right? We make light of them, but frankly, they weren't exactly the best. But also, they were often a symptom of the wider society and structure. The society during Jesus' time was sort of built in this way. At the top, about 7% of the population were all of the rulers and the folks who held power. You have the top 1% or 2% of the people who were the rulers, the aristocracy, and they always got the surplus of the agriculture. They had all the power and privilege and prestige and standing armies to defend them. Then you have those who served them directly under that, which made up another 5%. And then you had everyone else under them. The rulers could kind of do what they wanted because, frankly, they had all the power and the riches and everything they needed, and everyone else under them just sort of fell in line. And during Jesus' time, most of the people that he hung out with were those lower 10%, the unclean, the thieves, and the merchants, the people who were shamed and struggling most days and weeks to get by. The rulers over these people continued the oppression, but my guess is the people that Jesus hung out with were the people who were a little upset, a little frustrated. They were ready for something to change. They were like parents of teens who could see what needed to happen and wanted to make it happen. The folks that Jesus hung out with were ready to make sure that those who were supposed to serve them were actually doing it. You can call for change. You can say that things need to change. You can say that you are ready for change. You can even actually be ready for change. But we know, you know, that change never comes easily and never comes quickly. You for sure have heard the saying that absolute power corrupts absolutely. And make no mistake, y'all, the emperors of Rome held absolute power over their subjects. Their kingdoms and their reigns were built upon fear and intimidation and doing what was best for them, not the other. Those who have power 
are not likely to distribute that power among the people. They're not likely to abdicate that power without some form of pushback, resistance, protest, or revolution. Yet sometimes all it takes to overcome oppression, sometimes all that is required to remedy a cycle of unjust oppression and occupation, sometimes all that is required to challenge abusive power structures is a voice. A lone, single voice just willing to speak out. Willing to speak truth. A different kind of truth. An opposing truth. A just truth. Willing to speak God's truth in the face of corrupt power. In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, Luke tells us when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, when Herod was ruler over Galilee, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, while he was in the wilderness. John went into all of the region around Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, the crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways made smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. In the midst of a corrupt reign. John the Baptist spoke a prophetic voice and he spoke prophetic truth. And this truth, based in the words of the prophet Isaiah, would later become the basis, later become the foundation for the preaching and for the teaching of Jesus. Where Isaiah would speak of valleys to be filled, mountains to be made low, Jesus would speak of the last becoming first, the first becoming last, the powerful being lowered and the lowly, the marginalized being lifted up in the eyes of God. A reversal, not just in thinking, but a reversal in doing and being a shift from the kingdom of Tiberias and the kingdom to the kingdom of heaven, a shift from the reign of Pilate and Herod to the reign of God. When you start talking about new reigns and new kingdoms, those whose power is invested in the old reigns and in the old kingdoms start, they start to get really nervous, y'all. When you start challenging the power that is above you, when you start challenging behaviors that aren't right, are challenging how things have always been done. Those things which are done to meet someone's personal agenda or to meet their selfish need. Those who hold the power and have done so for a long time, especially unchecked power that has been used and abused through fear and intimidation. Those who hold that power get more nervous. They get more anxious. They will even get angry and vengeful. We speak so highly. And we speak with such reverence of the prophets, those who were willing to speak God's justice and equality in the midst of occupation and oppression. Moses, John the Baptist, Jesus, some might even be willing to include Gandhi or Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Rosa Parks or Dr. King in that list. 
that list of prophetic voices, those who spoke of God's justice in the name of equality and in the name of dignity for all of God's people. We speak so highly and with such reverence of them. But do we ever do we ever take the time to consider the price they paid? Would we be willing? Would we be willing to do what they did to speak out against injustice, to suffer as they did in the name, as Bonhoeffer said it, the cost of discipleship? John the Baptist knew that Herod was having a fling with his brother's wife. It was the worst kept secret around Galilee. John could have kept quiet. He could have kept quiet and he would have kept his head. But John couldn't keep quiet. Not because he just wasn't able to keep his mouth shut. Rather, he could not keep quiet because as a servant of God, John the Baptist knew that he had to speak up in the face of injustice, in the face of power that was being abused. Gandhi, Bonhoeffer, King, each one dedicated their life and their voice. They each gave their voice and literally gave their life on behalf of those being murdered or oppressed, those being exterminated. They gave their lives for the sake of God's justice. They gave their lives for speaking truth to power. You know, when Rosa Parks sat down in the front seat of that bus in Montgomery in December of 1955, she didn't do it thinking that she was about to start a revolution. She didn't do it thinking she was about to start a boycott. She did it, y'all, simply because she was tired. She had been on her feet working all day and she was tired, too tired to walk to the back. But by doing so, by refusing to walk those few extra steps to the back of the bus, simply because that is where society had told her that is where she belonged. Rosa Parks spoke truth to power. By sitting, she stood. She stood in the face of the cycles of bigotry and systemic racism. And then there was Jesus. Maybe you were wondering when we would get to Jesus. Jesus took the message of John the Baptist, the prophetic voice of Isaiah, the leadership of Moses, and he spoke of a new way, of a new truth, that truth known as the kingdom of God. And this truth had taken him all across Galilee and Judea, healing and teaching and proclaiming sight to the blind, release to the captives, debt forgiveness to the poor. For three years, for three years, Jesus had been challenging the power of the religious and political authorities, speaking God's new truth. He had questioned their motives. He had questioned their faith. He had even questioned their integrity. But that was all a warm-up for what was to come. Because you see, the Passover was at hand. The time had come for all good and faithful practitioners of Judaism to make that pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And it would be in Jerusalem that Jesus would face his greatest test, would speak his greatest truth. It would be in Jerusalem that Jesus would speak the great, against the greatest power he had seen thus far. So at our point in the story, 
Jesus has come to the end of his journey. Back in chapter 9 of Luke, we hear that it says, quote, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. He's going to go on a journey to the holy city. And now we're here. Jesus, in chapter 19, stands at the gates of Jerusalem. And as Pastor Patrick said, it's time for Passover, which just means everyone and their mother has shown up to celebrate one of the highest holy days in Judaism. And that means Caesar's here, too. And on one part of town, Caesar is making his grand entrance. And it probably looks something like this, according to Paul Brooks Duff, a New Testament scholar. He says, first of all, typically the entrances meant that the ruler was escorted in by numerous amounts of people and often his entire army. So you have this giant parade coming in. And the people are typically shouting something. Maybe a hymn, maybe just a general acclamation. And at some point during the parade, the ruler has to make some show of authority and power. Maybe predicting something that is to come or just demonstrating how powerful he is. And then finally, once he comes into the city, he has to appropriate the city in some way, typically going to the temple and providing some sacrifice. The Passover, this Jewish festival is in town, and Caesar, the ruler of all of Rome, is coming in with a big parade, shouts of acclamation, showing of force, and reclaiming the city. And on the other side of town, it's a different parade. Jesus is coming into town, and he has something of a similar procession going on. Folks spreading cloaks, waving palm branches, shouting acclamations, multitudes of disciples, it even says. And before he comes into town, he made a prediction. He said to his disciples, hey, go into town and find this donkey. It's going to be tied up at this place. And all you have to do to get it is just say, the Lord has need of it. The Lord has need of it. And it seems like there might be a different king coming into town. Zechariah 9.9 says, Lo, your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey. Just like Solomon when he was crowned king. And then after Jesus comes into town, he goes into the temple and turns over the tables, reclaiming the city, it seems. The kingship of Jesus, as pointed to in the parade, a parade that seems rather like Caesar's but a little different, is made explicit when the people start shouting, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory on the highest heaven. One side of the city is Caesar, making his show of force, reclaiming the city, and on the other part of the city is Jesus, in a parade, just like a king, but saying something a little different. Jesus, unlike Caesar, is the king of fishermen, tax collectors, Samaritans, harlots, blind men, demoniacs, and cripples, those who followed Jesus, our Alan Culpepper says, was a ragtag bunch. One parade on one side of town, one on the other. And the one with Jesus, though, is a parade and maybe even a protest, but is more importantly an act of worship. And here's why. The people are shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of God, not in the name of Caesar. The people are worshiping and that they're proclaiming that there's a ruler bigger than anyone on earth, that there is something bigger than our human power. It's God, frankly. The people are worshiping through this parade by recentering on God, 
It should be the focus, not Caesar. Pastor Josh and I are aware that most likely this is not the type of sermon you expected to hear on Palm Sunday. All of this talk about occupation and oppression, about power and opposition, we understand. But the reality is that in order to appreciate the depths of what we are about to experience over these next several days of Holy Week, we must also appreciate the journey leading us to that particular place, to that particular time within the life and the ministry of Jesus. Oftentimes when it comes to Palm Sunday, we like to think of it. As one last hurrah, one last joyful experience before everything goes horribly, horribly wrong in Jerusalem during Holy Week. But on that Palm Sunday, as Jesus entered into the holy city from the east, yes, the multitudes through their songs of praising God and shouts of blessed is the king. Yes, they were offering their worship to God, but they were also doing much more than that. They were protesting by staging a second parade coming in from the east as Caesar and his parade was coming in from the west into the holy city. Jesus and his followers literally on the other side of town. And we all know, don't we, what it's like and who gathers on the other side of town. Jesus, with his followers on the other side of town, staging a protest. And through their worship of God, the multitudes were protesting Pilate and Herod and Tiberius and all who had come before and all who would come after. They were protesting against the gods of Rome by praising the gods of God of creation. They were protesting against the reign of the emperor by proclaiming the reign of God. Now, all my life, I have heard that the reason that we come to worship on Sunday is because Sunday is the day of resurrection. Christians worship on Sunday to commemorate God's raising of Jesus on a Sunday. And every time we gather to worship, I've been told, no matter the Sunday, we are celebrating, we are honoring Easter. We are honoring God's resurrection of Jesus. We are ideally, as poet Wendell Berry states it, we are practicing resurrection. We are believing there is something new. We are believing there is something better. And we are practicing living into that something new and that something better every time we come to worship God. But in recent years, I have come to understand another truth, an equal truth about our worship and why we do it when we do it. Not only do we come on this day of the week to honor and remember Easter Sunday, but we also come in part every week to honor what happened on Palm Sunday. Our worship is part celebration and it is part protest. Worship is protest by coming here each week you are protesting you all every one of us we're protesters by coming here we are engaging in the same behaviors as the multitudes on palm sunday 
praising God joyfully with a loud voice about all the deeds of power, about what God has done. And we are saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. By coming here and proclaiming that truth, by proclaiming God's truth. We are standing together in the face of all the powers that exist in the world. We are standing in the face of all the unhealthy cycles and oppressive systems. And we are saying this is not right. There is another way. There is a faithful way. It is the way of God. That way is the kingdom of God. When you come and worship, you are saying things are not right in the world. You are saying that things are not how they are meant to be. And you are asking. No, you are praying for God's kingdom to come and God's will to be done. People come on Sunday to be part of a sacred community. To be in relationship. They come, we come to share and to celebrate. But there are many And I am betting that at some point in time, that many has included every single one of us here. There are many who come to this place to worship because they feel broken. They come to worship because the world feels broken. A man shows up in church just days after his wife of 65 years is buried. This is where I needed to be, he said. Everything else in my world is broken and has been turned upside down. This is where I needed to be. Because things are broken, we come. After World War II, the American church experienced a boom. Why? Because in part, people were seeking some kind of answer. Some kind of solace after the tragedies and the vulgarities of the Holocaust and the brokenness of war. When the country was broken, when the country felt broken after 9-11, where did God's people come that Sunday? They came to church. They came to church as a means of calling out their own brokenness and the brokenness in the world. And saying, I want, I need something else. When things are broken, you worship. When things are broken, you protest. You protest against what is broken. You protest against what is unjust. Your worship is just as much an act of protest against the oppressive kingdoms and unjust rulers today as it was on that Palm Sunday. This morning... Just by being here, you are speaking truth. You are speaking God's truth to power. And you know what? I can promise you. As we are here, as we are sitting here right now, as other persons of the Christian faith are sitting right now across the country or across the world, I guarantee you that as we are sitting here, there are some folk who are really getting very nervous right now. Because I promise you, those people who are getting very nervous, they do so 
They do so when children of God, when followers of Jesus start protesting and speaking out against misuse of power. And you know what we say to that? As followers of Jesus Christ on this Palm Sunday, we say we don't care. We don't care about you being nervous. We don't care about you being anxious. We will not be quiet. But if we were silent, even the stones would shout out. Amen.